Hi, welcome to the New Covenant Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast, a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Deuteronomy chapter 24, and we'll be looking at the first five verses this evening. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 5. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. When she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, if the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her as his wife, then her former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. When a man has taken a new wife, he shall not go out to war or be charged with any busyness. He shall be free at home one year and bring happiness to his wife whom he has taken." Thus far, the reading of God's Word. You may be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Father, as we come to this passage where we consider one element of uh, your laws regarding marriage, divorce, and remarriage, Lord, help us to understand this very tricky subject. Lord, there is so much joy in marriage, and yet there is so much devastation when marriages are ruined. Lord, help us to understand what your word teaches about these things so that we can know how to act as Christians and so to honor you in all that we do. For we do ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, there are very few things in life that are as exciting as marriage. Um, If you are married, I'm sure you remember the day that you were married. Uh, It's a time of great joy and excitement. All of the families get together on both sides, and there is great rejoicing. There is great excitement because of the potential to start a new life together, to found now a new family, the establishment of a home, the uh, ability to have children together, and the entire life that is put before you. It is a time of great excitement. And just as uh, marriage and the day of marriage is something that brings great joy, also there are very few things in life that are as painful as the disruption of marriage, particularly by divorce. Uh, There are very few things that are as exciting and thrilling and joyous as marriage, and there are very few things that are as painful as divorce. Divorce rips families apart. It causes great pain, much tears, it can even feel like a death has happened. And, uh, and though there are times when, as we'll see, divorce is acceptable, where it is something that is, something that is uh, even right for a Christian to pursue at certain times, uh, it is still also true that divorce can never happen without there being sin. There's no way that a divorce could ever happen without there being sin. Now, the person who initiates the divorce is not necessarily the one who's sinning. The person who initiates the divorce may have grounds for the divorce, but that those grounds for divorce 
presuppose that there was uh, not even just small sins, but that there was great sins that has disrupted uh, the marriage relationship. And so it is either a grave sin that caused the, the, the disruption of the marriage or to pursue a divorce when the scriptures do not allow it is also itself a very grave sin, uh, as we will see. And the effects of the sin, as I mentioned, are great. It rips families apart. It causes great pain and sorrow. And so here, Moses teaches about remarriage, and he gives some elements of the teaching, the full biblical teaching, of when a pursuing a divorce is acceptable, and then further, uh, what kinds of remarriage are acceptable if there are, in fact, uh, multiple divorces that happen. One of the things that we'll see is that Moses' teaching uh, harmonizes quite well with the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, that, that actually uh, the Lord Jesus Christ builds upon what Moses uh, has said. And, he, and as I mentioned, if you were with us when we were going through the Sermon on the Mount in the mornings, that in fact the Lord Jesus Christ has given the authoritative interpretation of Moses uh, such that the Bible really from beginning to end is one with regard to its testimony of uh, the way in which um, it describes marriage and the way in which it describes the grounds for divorce and uh, even uh, remarriage itself. And this is something that the church must deal with in every age. There is no situation ever where we will not need to consider uh, the very tricky subject of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Always, in every age of the church, this will be something that the church has to deal with. And so it's necessary for Christians to understand, for you to understand, uh, what the scriptures say about this topic uh, so that you can understand if you're pursuing marriage or if you're in a marriage, uh, the way in which you are to act uh, in light of the great truths of marriage. And then also, uh, when, when would be an appropriate time for you to consider divorce? And if you, if you do get divorced, what uh, kind of situations are necessary for you to think about with regard to remarriage? Now, the goal of this particular sermon is I'm actually going to try to deal with um, the topic of marriage, divorce, and remarriage from a, a, a fuller kind of biblical perspective. So I'm not going to, to stay just with Deuteronomy chapter 24. Um, you'll know if you were, again, if you were with us for the morning services when we were going through the Sermon on the Mount, I actually did uh, discuss the interpretation of Deuteronomy 24 to some extent uh, there. But what I want to do here, something that I've not done, is, is show all of the ways in which the scriptures describe marriage, divorce, and remarriage, and, I'll, and we'll bring in Deuteronomy 24 to, to, to help supplement this discussion. Um, but the point is that the goal is going to be to give a, a general overview of the biblical teaching of marriage, uh, divorce, and remarriage. And so we'll just look at these three things, and we'll look at a number of different passages that relate uh, to them. And again, particularly with divorce and with remarriage, we will be uh, making use of Deuteronomy chapter 24. But the goal will be to show um, what marriage is, the sanctity of marriage, why it is so significant, and then divorce, what are the grounds for divorce, and then what are the situations where remarriage is appropriate? And so we'll consider first marriage. Now the primary text to understand the full significance of marriage is the institution of marriage itself, which is Genesis chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. And this is something that the Lord Jesus Christ shows us in Matthew 19 when the Pharisees come to him and they have this question about when it's right to get a divorce. Uh, he brings them back to the institution of, of marriage. And this is always the way the scriptures work with anything uh, whether it be circumcision or baptism or the Lord's Supper. Uh, one of the reasons why we read the institution for the Lord's Supper each and every Lord's Day before we take the Lord's Supper is because the full significance of the Lord's Supper is found in the institution of it. And the same is true with marriage. 
that the, the full significance of marriage is found when it is instituted. And what we see is that, is that it's instituted in Genesis chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. And I'm not gonna, we're not, not going to go there, but just a couple of things to note uh, about that particular text. This is the text, if you remember, where uh, Adam says, you know, uh, God brings to him Eve. And he says, now finally this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be, call, be called woman because she was taken from man. And then the institution comes next in verse 24. For this reason, the man shall leave his father and mother and, and cling to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. And then verse 25, and both the man and the woman were naked and they were not ashamed. One of the things that we note uh, with regard to the institution of marriage is that it is a covenant. That's one of the things that we see. It's not a blood relationship. It is a, is a relationship that is established by covenant. The language in verse 23 of Genesis chapter 2 is covenant language, whereby then there is uh, a new relationship that's established where there are certain stipulations and expectations for the relationship. There are certain terms or certain things you can and can't do that uh, in a marriage relationship that are different from your actions towards other people who are not in that covenant relationship. There's that, that kind of establishment of a relationship. And then there are also benefits of, of intimacy uh, that come with, uh, with this covenant relationship. So there's, uh, there are expectations for uh, doing, carrying out certain obligations. And then there are also rewards. There are there's a, a kind of intimacy that comes from the establishment uh, of the covenant relationship. And one of the things that we see then uh, with regard to the importance of marriage is it, because it's a covenant, and this is one of the reasons why um, it is important, it is actually important contrary to what many people think today, it is quite important that you do in fact really get married, that the marriage and the marriage ceremony is important. The reason why it's important is because the marriage ceremony is the covenantal binding of one to another. If you have not had the, the public uh, taking of vows whereby you formally enter into that covenant relationship, you have not actually bound yourself to the other person and you are not then participating in what the scriptures call marriage. Marriage is in fact a covenant. Now the other thing that to note that we can understand from Genesis chapter two verses 23 and 25 uh, is that it is between one man and one woman. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and, be, and cling to his wife, one wife, and the two shall become one flesh. There is a, a union of two. It's not a union of three. It's not a union of a man or a man. It is only the union of two, which means that Genesis chapter 2, in terms of the definition of marriage, the institution of it, uh, clearly prohibits all polygamy, all polyamory, as it's called today, all homosexuality, all bestiality, anything like this is prohibited by Genesis chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. And this is even one of the, the ways in which we can say that the Old Testament does in fact condemn uh, even polygamy. You know, many people wonder about, you know, there is this or that person in the Old Testament who uh, in fact had more than one wife. But the reality is, is in the institution, which is most foundational for, for anything, the institution of anything is its most foundational definition, it's the meaning of it. In the institution of marriage itself, there is a condemnation of all things apart from the pattern of one man and one woman. And this is what marriage is. This is the reason why it is so significant. And even if we look at the way in which Christ handles Matthew, uh, Genesis chapter 2, in Matthew 19, he, reasoning from Genesis chapter 2, points out that what is happening then when there is this covenant union between a man and a woman, that actually what's happening is that God is the one who is joining together the two into one. 
And this is uh, the reason why marriage then is, is so sacred in this way, where, where there's a sanctity to it, where it needs to be uh, well respected, is because it is actually God who does the joining. It's God who does the joining. Which means then, if anyone tries to seek a divorce where God does not permit it, you are seeking to separate the thing which God himself has joined together. Which means the sin is not ultimately against another person. And of course it is against another person if you, if you are sinning against another person by pursuing a divorce where you do not have grounds. But the point that the Lord Jesus Christ is making is that you are actually sinning first and foremost against God. Because you are trying to separate the thing which God himself is joining together. And so marriage is something to be celebrated. Mar and, and even all the things that come with marriage, even the, the intimacy that comes with marriage is something to be celebrated. As uh, Moses points out in Genesis chapter 2, 25, the, uh, the reason why he says the, the man and the woman were naked, they were not ashamed, is because this is uh, part of the intimacy that comes with the establishment of marriage. And it's something that is, in fact, celebrated. And if you've been with us in the mornings, you'll know we've been going through the Song of Songs, uh, where we've seen throughout that there is um, really no shame at all in talking about the kinds of sexual desires that uh, are expressed within the context of marriage. And even we've been looking at the first part of the Song of Songs where there's been uh, this great desire for the consummation of the marriage before it actually happens. But we're going to see even throughout that even after, uh, at that when the wedding happens, there's a great celebration of the kind of intimacy that comes from marriage. It is a great and a good thing. And it is part of what it means to be in covenant one with another. And so this is just some of what the scriptures say with regard to the meaning of marriage and what it is about. Uh, we've even seen further in the Song of Songs that um, even in the celebration of these things, that it is even as early as the Song of Songs meant to teach us about the relationship between God and his people. There's even, I think, hints of that with regard to Genesis chapter 2 as both the, the way that God relates to Adam in the garden is by covenant and the way that Adam relates to his wife is also uh, by covenant. So there are all these things that show the great significance of marriage. And it shows that we are not to enter into this lightly. That if, if you are here and you are not married, if you are even perhaps younger and, uh, and are thinking about going into marriage at some point, this is something to consider. You need to be quite, um, you need to understand what it means to enter into marriage such that when you do, you are ready. And even now, if you're younger, the time to prepare for entering into marriage is now. The, the time to prepare for entering into marriage is before you actually enter into marriage. And if you are married, if you are married, this means you are to, to think very hard about your obligation to your wife, if you're, if you're a husband, or if you're a wife, your obligation uh, to your husband, uh, your obligation one to another. Uh, your service to your spouse in marriage is very much a service to Christ. And your lack of fulfilling the obligation that you have in marriage uh, brings great disrepute uh, upon the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, one of the ways in which Christians uh, ought to be clearly distinguished from the world is by uh, the strength of their marriages. Our marriages are to reflect Christ and the church. And you are to pursue this then very zealously. Uh, you must pursue having a good re relationship uh, with your spouse and even to think about um, the great truths that undergird the meaning uh, of marriage and to act in accordance with these truths for the sake of the glory of God. And this means then even if, even if you do not think the other person is acting um, in a way that's consistent with his responsibility or her responsibility, it is still for you to act in accordance with yours, to love even if you are not loved and to pursue 
uh, and to pursue a good and godly marriage for the sake of the glory of God. This is even what the Lord Jesus Christ has given to us as an example in Ephesians chapter 5. When his wife, when his bride was rebellious, he laid down his life for her to redeem her, to cleanse her, that he might present her without spot or blemish or wrinkle or any such thing. And that is to be the way, particularly that husbands act, but even if you are married as a wife to a husband who is not treating you the way that you ought, that you would, as it says in 1 Peter 3, that you would win over your husband by the godliness of your character, that you are to act in a way that's godly, even if it is not reciprocated. And the reason for this is, is because the truths of the gospel are the things that undergird marriage. Your service is ultimately a service to Christ, and you are to maintain your love for your spouse for the sake of the glory of God. This is what the scriptures say about marriage. Now, the second thing to consider then is divorce. What do the scriptures say about divorce? Now, you'll know if you're familiar with our standards and in the Westminster Confession of Faith that it gives two grounds uh, for divorce, and those are sexual immorality or, uh, or um, adultery, as is also said, and desertion. So we're going to look at those in turn so that we can understand uh, what the scriptures say about this. And this is in this first one, sexual immorality is where uh, we come back to Deuteronomy chapter 24. Now, there were two understandings of what is actually going on with this first divorce that's mentioned in verse 1 of Deuteronomy chapter 24 that were uh, even back to, the, uh, back to Judaism. There were two different schools of thought with regard to uh, what is actually meant, what Moses is saying with regard to the uh, the grounds for divorce here. And notice what it says. When a man takes a wife and marries her and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because, because he has found some uncleanness in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce. So there the reason for the divorce is he finds an uncleanness in her. And so he writes her a certificate of divorce, he puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Now the question is, what is the, meant by this uncleanness? Now, um, this translation, uncleanness, and I'm not sure if you would have perhaps a different uh, translation in your Bibles, if you have something other than the NKJB, this is quite paraphrastic in terms of uh, what's actually being said. Literally, if you, if you were to give a very wooden translation, it would be something like nakedness of a thing. That is, that is actually what is being said. And so there was one school that understood this to be uh, that you could not get a divorce unless there was adultery. And the second understanding was basically that um, you could get a divorce for anything. And even uh, one of the, the rabbis uh, in the first century actually said that if you find someone who looks better than your wife, even that was grounds for a divorce. And so, of course, that's uh, quite contrary to the scriptures and, and uh, clearly not what Moses uh, has in mind. But the idea is that Moses is giving permission for divorce when there is a, a, a matter of nakedness that causes the woman not to, not to find favor uh, in his eyes. Now, the idea of nakedness and uncovering the nakedness of a person uh, is a euphemism. A euphemism just means it's a, it's a politer way to say something that, if you were to be very explicit, would be um, kind of shameful to say. Uh, it's a euphemism for sexual activity that's, that's immoral. And we find this over and over again, for instance, in Leviticus chapter 18 and Leviticus chapter 20, that uh, if you, you, you approach someone to uncover their nakedness, that is to have uh, sexual relations with the person. And so, um, so uncovering the nakedness then is a, a euphemism for sexual activity. And here then, uh, Moses is, I, I think, saying then that there is in fact sexual immorality 
that is the only grounds for divorce. That's what he's saying. If you find something in your wife uh, where there is this, these kind of actions that are, that are uh, sexually immoral, then it becomes grounds for divorce. So that's what Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1 says. And this is even uh, the way the Lord Jesus Christ appears to interpret the passage as well. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, and also in Matthew 19, verses 7 to 9. Now, um, when the Lord Jesus Christ is speaking about the grounds for divorce, particularly in Matthew chapter 5, it's very interesting to note that in the, the, uh, in the Greek original, he says actually a, if you find in her or... Um, the grounds for divorce would be except for a word of sexual immorality. Now, the reason that's significant is because in both uh, Christ's uh, uh, description of divorce in Matthew 5 and in Deuteronomy chapter 24, there is a word related to the word word or matter, and there's also the word related to a kind of sexually immoral practice. And so it seems that the Lord Jesus Christ is in fact alluding to Deuteronomy 24 when he gives his teaching in Matthew chapter 5. He could have said, if anyone divorces a wife except for sexual immorality, then, then this would be, um, you know, then he causes her to commit adultery, as he says. He actually says, except for a word or a matter of sexual immorality, which appears to be him trying to link, him linking what he is saying with what Moses is saying. The, the, the way in which he describes the sin is actually quite similar to the way that Moses describes uh, the sin as a, a nakedness of a thing, or in the, in the Hebrew original, it's actually more the nakedness of a word. And the word word in Hebrew and Greek can, can mean uh, thing or a matter. And so uh, Jesus appears to understand then Moses as well to be speaking of uh, to, to be speaking particularly of sexual immorality, that sexual immorality is grounds uh, for divorce. Now, you may be wondering, well, what does it mean then in Matthew chapter 19 when Christ says that Moses only gave you the right to divorce because of the hardness uh, of your heart? Uh, is it, was, wasn't this just a concession and that Christ then said something different than, than what Moses is saying? Well, it's important to note that uh, this does not mean that divorce... Um, where there is sexual immorality is immoral. The, and the Lord Jesus Christ was not trying to say that. In fact, he himself says that even in there, in the context of Matthew chapter 19, that if you commit sexual immorality, that this does lead to grounds uh, for divorce. The point is, is that in all cases, whether Old Testament or New Testament, divorce is not the norm. It's not the norm. There has to be something very bad that has happened in order uh, for there to be a divorce. It is contrary to the original intention of God. And Moses would have agreed with this. Moses, in fact, did agree with this because he is the one that wrote Genesis chapter 2, the institution, which is where uh, the Lord Jesus Christ uh, reasons and says, this is why we know that it's contrary to, to the intention uh, of God. And then the one exception that's given, which is an exception that has been maintained even by the Lord Jesus Christ himself, is that if there is, in fact, sexual immorality, then you do, in fact, uh, grant uh, grounds for divorce. And this is, this is even upheld even further if we think about the way that God interacts with his people. Now remember, there's this relationship. The way that God interacts with his people is parallel to uh, the marriage of two people. And we even see that there is ways in which God divorces his people when they commit idolatry, which is spiritual adultery. When the people of God commit what is essentially spiritual sexual immorality, God gives them a certificate of divorce. We see this, for instance, in Isaiah chapter 50 and in Jeremiah chapter 3. In both instances, uh, there is grounds for God to act the way that he does. His people have not been faithful with him. 
and therefore uh, there is a right of God to send his people away. And this is exactly what is happening uh, in the exile. And so, brothers and sisters, if you just think of, of this in terms of uh, when, how bad does a sin have to be for someone to have grounds, for you to have grounds to seek a divorce, it is basically just sexual immorality. Now, we'll see the way in which desertion uh, lines up with this and in the way in which it goes with this as a second grounds. But there's some sense in which sexual immorality is really the main grounds that, pe- that someone has. Uh, the, the idea of desertion, as we'll see, has, has many other factors that come into it. But in terms of a particular sin where this person does this thing and therefore you have grounds to divorce, the main thing is, in fact, uh, sexual immorality. Anything short of that, there really needs to be effort at reconciliation. And even, and even it's important to note that with this grounds, it gives you grounds to divorce, but it does not give you an obligation to divorce. There may be all kinds of situations where there is genuine repentance, uh, where uh, it may not be right for you to seek a divorce, even if there has been uh, sexual unfaithfulness uh, in the marriage. And so this is the first, the very the first grounds for divorce. Now the second one, the second one, as I mentioned, is desertion. And this comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I want to spend a little bit of time uh, on this because um, I've actually preached on a good number of the passages in the Lord's providence that deal with um, that deal with these passages, you know, I've, I've preached on Genesis chapter 2, preached on Matthew 5, and therefore we've looked at uh, Deuteronomy 24. Uh, so a lot of these passages we've touched on, but I've not really dealt much with 1 Corinthians 7. So I do want to spend a little bit of time uh, looking at what the scriptures say with regard to desertion. So we're gonna, I'm actually going to read beginning with verse 10 and going through verse 16 so that we can see what it says. He says, Now to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord... That's to say, this is something that the Lord Jesus Christ said during his earthly ministry. A wife is not to depart from her husband, but even if she does, does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. But to the rest, I, not the Lord, that is, Paul is speaking, not, not just something that the Lord Jesus Christ said uh, on, in his earthly ministry. I say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe if he is willing to live with her, let, him, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Now, there's a, a couple of important things to note about this passage. First, note that this situation is only speaking about a situation where a believer is married to an unbeliever. It's not just desertion in every single instance or case. The main situation is a believer married to an unbeliever. And the idea is, is that if you are married and you understand the sanctity of marriage because you are a Christian, but you're married to someone who does not understand the sanctity of marriage and they just want out, They don't believe in God, and therefore they just want to leave. The idea is, in those cases, you can let the person go. You are not bound to stay in a marriage where the other party simply wants to leave and where the church really can't say anything. Um, The church has has no way really to bring discipline against someone who's already outside the church. And so in those kinds of cases, what the Apostle Paul is saying is, God has called you to peace, 
and you can allow the person to leave. So it's a very narrow under, an understanding of what desertion is. Now, uh, if you were to say, well, you know, what about extreme cases where Christians commit great abuses against their spouses? Or think of particularly a man committing uh, some kind of abuse against, uh, against his wife. Uh, wouldn't that fall under this? And the answer is yes, but it does so because uh, basically if there is an action that, that a, a spouse does against another that proves that the person is not a Christian and that the action itself shows that the, that the spouse does not want to live with the one who's the believer, then that then becomes grounds for a divorce. And so, for instance, uh, if a man were to just abandon his family, you know, what we'd classically think uh, of as being a desertion, then at that point, church discipline would need to be initiated. And once church discipline is initiated, excommunication happens, assuming there's no repentance, and the person remains outside the home, then, then, the, the, then the wife, in that instance, would then have grounds for divorce because there is an unbeliever who is not willing to live with his wife or uh, any other kind of thing. So if there is, a, if there is just um, negligence where perhaps, again, the, the husband is uh, not willing to provide for the family, you know, at what point does that become a kind of desertion? Well, the answer is when the session has worked with the person and when the person refuses to repent and he shows, and, and that leads all the way to excommunication, and he shows by his actions that he's unwilling to live with his wife because he's not providing for her the basic things that she needs, then she would have grounds for divorce. Uh, that's the issue that the Apostle Paul uh, is speaking of. Notice as well, in some ways it's very restricted, but in other ways it's, it's even quite... Um, it can even be quite uh, broad depending on the situation. The idea is, notice in verse 12, uh, it's not just desertion in terms of the dramatic spouse just leaves and doesn't leave a note sort of thing. Uh, what the Apostle Paul is speaking of is something even more basic. If the unbelieving spouse simply does not uh, agree to live with the believing spouse, if he just wants out, then that would be grounds for divorce. And even in those situations, is actually probably even better to say that in that situation, a divorce is something that should not be hindered. If the unbelieving spouse wants out, what the Apostle Paul here says is basically just let the person go. You just, just let him go because you are called to peace. There is no obligation for you as a Christian to be in a marriage with an unbeliever who desperately wants out of the marriage and to maintain that position for years and all of the, 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 the weight of pain that that will cause over time. Now, the Apostle Paul also says, though, if the unbelieving spouse wants to remain married, then you are not to divorce the unbelieving spouse. So even if there is excommunication, even that does not necessarily grant grounds. The only way that you would have grounds is if there is an excommunication and also correspondingly good evidence to show that that spouse does not desire to live with, uh, with the Christian. Uh, anything short of that, there is, in fact, uh, no grounds. And so these are the two grounds for divorce. Anything else is to, to pursue a divorce for any other reason is a grave sin against God. It is to try to separate the thing that God, in fact, has joined together. Sexual immorality and desertion as defined, particularly with regard to a believer and an unbeliever in marriage. Now, the last thing to consider then is remarriage. Remarriage. Now, there are two ways to consider this. First is if there is a divorce without grounds. If there is a divorce without grounds, not only is it a sin to pursue such a divorce, but also every remarriage after that is also sinful. And this is why the Lord Jesus Christ says in Matthew chapter 5 and in uh, Matthew chapter 19 as well, 
that uh, if you pursue a marriage after there is a divorce where there, where there were no grounds, that the divorce is wrong. And also, you, you yourself commit adultery and you cause your spouse to commit adultery. If you marry somebody who is divorced without grounds, you've committed adultery with that person. That's the idea. And, and then the other spouse, uh, you, then your spouse would also have committed uh, adultery uh, as well. That's what happens when there is marriage, when, when there is a remarriage without grounds. And so if you were to ask then what should be done? If there is a marriage where there's been no grounds, there was actually no real legitimate reason to get divorced, the thing that is necessary for you is even as the Apostle Paul summarizing the Lord Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians 7 says, the thing that is necessary is to pursue reconciliation with your spouse. You are not free to remarry. If you were not granted grounds in a divorce, the only thing that you can do is be reconciled to your spouse. Any other action with regard to marriage uh, becomes uh, sinful and it becomes even uh, adultery, full-on adultery uh, itself. Now notice in Deuteronomy 24, if we come back to this passage, that Moses assumes there was grounds. So Christ, when he's speaking in Matthew 5, he is speaking of a remarriage where there was no grounds. And he says that that is adultery. Moses assumes there was grounds. And so in, th in this way, Moses is giving one side of the coin and Christ is giving the other. When there is grounds, what Moses says is there can be a remarriage. Uh, but if there is a second divorce, there can never be a situation, even if the second spouse dies, never can the, uh, can the spouse return to the first spouse. The, and in this case, the, the wife, if she's remarried to another person after there's been a divorce, she can never return to the first husband, never. And the reason this is significant then, brothers and sisters, is because it shows um, the permanence of divorce in some sense. And this is why all these things need to be treated with such weight and care. If you proceed with a divorce, and then your spouse gets remarried, you can never go back to the person under no circumstances. Doesn't matter if, if, the, if the second spouse dies, there is no circumstance when you can ever go back uh, to, the first, uh, to the first husband or the first wife. And this is really what, the, what Moses is saying here. There is uh, a legitimate divorce that happens. There is a second marriage, a remarriage that's valid because the, the, the uh, the grounds were in fact there for the for the first divorce, but then when once the second divorce happens, there can never be even even if it's not just a divorce. Because Moses says even if the 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 husband dies, the second husband dies, there can never be a time when you can go back to the first spouse. Now the reason for this is, is because this situation ends up looking uh, too much like adultery, where uh, you you are married to a person, and then you are married to a you are married to another person and then you go back to the other person where you have, um, from this perspective, a wife uh, has a man between having two instances, different instances of having the same man, which is uh, essentially what, uh, what adultery is. Um, and so this, so this is what Moses was prohibiting. This, this can never happen. It is too much uh, like adultery itself. And all of this as we've, we've mentioned, we were looking at in terms of the context of Deuteronomy, that this comes actually as it's related to the Eighth Commandment. It's interesting that it comes in the section on the Eighth Commandment and not the Seventh. And the reason for this, I think, is because um, the thing that's recognized is that there are rights that you have with regard to marriage. We looked at this last week with that a, the, a violation of the Eighth Commandment is not giving to another person their due, that something that is due to them. And the same thing is really going on uh, with marriage as well. There are rights, and a woman has a right not to be defiled, 
by uh, returning to this first marriage. And uh, a man has a right not to be defiled as well. And so because of that, if you were to pursue this and you would be violating, uh, of course, the seventh commandment, but you'd be violating the eighth commandment as well. And even we see something similar happening in, in verse 5 with regard to the right of the man and the woman, where Moses says that if a man takes a new wife and uh, he says that he shall not go out to war or be charged with any business, he shall be free at home for one year and bring happiness to his wife whom he has taken. The idea there is that he has a right to be with his wife for that year. And there's basically nothing uh, that can supersede that right. If you were to try to take that right from, from someone during that first year of marriage, that would, in fact, be uh, a violation of the Eighth Commandment. This, is, uh, this, this verse, particularly verse 5, is building on, if you remember, uh, uh, chapter 20, verse 7, where Moses speaks of um, the, during speaking about the Sixth Commandment, about just warfare. He says that, you know, if someone is betrothed to, to a wife and has not taken her, then he doesn't have to go to war. And Moses here says even further, if someone is newly married, also he does not have to go to war. He has a right to be uh, with uh, his wife. And so these are some of the, the, the ways in which remarriage can be okay. If there's just grounds, then there, you can't have remarriage. Uh, if there is not grounds, then it is, in fact, adultery. And then secondly, uh, a, a remarriage back to a first spouse with an intervening marriage uh, is, is prohibited in all cases. Now, the only other thing to speak about with regard to remarriage where there's divorce is what happens when you, when you divorce someone uh, with grounds who is, in fact, an unbeliever. So if something like 1 Corinthians 7 happens and there is, in fact, a divorce, uh, the question is, can there be reconciliation? And the answer to that is actually no. You cannot go back Two, if you had just grounds, you can remarry someone else, but you cannot go back and marry, even if there's been no intervening marriage, someone who is now currently an unbeliever. And the reason for that is, is because a divorce does, in fact, uh, split the marriage. That it's it's uh, split the people. The, the relationship has been dissolved. And at that point, then, if you pursue a reconciliation, it does require an actual remarriage. And the problem with this becomes is that the scriptures prohibit you to marry someone who is an unbeliever. And so if you're married to someone, perhaps they were a Christian, they fell away, or they were never a Christian, it was sin to get into the marriage, uh, and the, the marriage ends for some reason, you cannot then pursue a marriage with, with that person because they are, uh, in fact, an unbeliever. And this is what the Apostle Paul uh, says about being unequally yoked. Uh, we've, we've looked at this, unequally yoked. Uh, you are not to be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. This would be a, a violation uh, of God's commandments, not only in a first marriage, but even in a remarriage situation. And so hopefully, hopefully this has been helpful just to give an overview of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. As I said, marriage is a time of great rejoicing. And the scriptures, even as we see here with verse 5 in Deuteronomy chapter 24, um, recognize the joy of marriage and even say that it must be maintained, that for, the, for an entire year, no one's allowed to interrupt the, the joy of marriage. It's to be uh, uh, basically just uh, enjoyed for that time without interruption. But, but we see the other side as well, that divorce causes great problems. And because there is a sin that is undoing a relationship that, that has been established, that is the closest relationship that you'll have on earth, and all the entanglements that come with children and all those things, uh, with regard to uh, you know, uh, what, what you do with children after divorce, it makes divorce very complicated. 
And even as we think of when divorce is okay, when remarriage is okay, it becomes very difficult uh, to understand. And this is the reason why we need to think clearly as Christians uh, about these issues, to understand when there are, in fact, grounds for divorce, when there are good grounds for remarriage, so that you can know how to act in a way that's glorifying and honoring to God. And if you're not married yet, these are all things to consider. Uh, When you get married, you bind yourself to these obligations. If you're not married, you don't have these obligations. If you do get married, uh, all of these kinds of stipulations, the weight of all of them, uh, get put on you. It's not something to enter into lightly. The disciples understood in Matthew chapter 19. They said, you know, if this is the way it is with a man and woman, it's better not to marry. They understood that, that, it, that entering into a marriage relationship is quite a weighty thing. And so it's something for you uh, to consider. Now also, the last thing to, to leave you with is the reality that the Bible does in fact give hope. Uh, whether or not uh, you are married or whether or not you are in a situation that is good with regard to your marriage, the Bible does in fact give hope. Perhaps you find yourselves, yourself in a terribly difficult situation in one way or another. Perhaps you've sinned uh, and you have pursued a divorce or not treated your husband or wife the way that you should, uh, or perhaps even done something so serious that you've given grounds to them to divorce you. Uh, in all of these things, the thing to recognize is that there is, there is forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ if you come to him. There is forgiveness such that uh, even, if, uh, even if there has been bad things that have happened with regard to your actions in the past with marriage, divorce, and remarriage, that Christ uh, is able to forgive you of those things and set you even on the right path. Uh, even more than this, even more than this, consider uh, that Christ is the one who has reconciled his people to God after there was a divorce. He is the one who, in the most ultimate sense, has healed the division caused by divorce. And a divorce that was even more fundamental and serious than any human divorce in this world. Because of that, then we can know as well that Christ is the one who can grant healing and reconciliation in any difficult divorce. He can give you the grace, forgive you of your sins. He can also give you the grace, the courage to act in a way that's glorifying to him. And he can even heal the wounds that are caused by the pain uh, of a divorce and even, uh, and even a remarriage. And so, brothers and sisters, as we consider marriage, divorce, and remarriage, the thing to do in all things is, one, to learn, to learn how you are to act, to glorify God, but also to look to Christ, to look to Christ who is our hope in the midst of a world of sin. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about our church, please visit our website at newcovenantopc.com. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. May God enlighten the eyes of your heart that through the preached word, your eyes may be opened to behold the glory of Christ more and more.